Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Just how our citrus industry, you know, I don't think a lot of people realize that ag for Florida really is the backbone of our economy, right? We talk about tourism a lot, but... When COVID happens or when the housing market crashes, agriculture is always right there in what the top two, top three. I mean, we're literally the backbone of, of the state's economy. And I don't think the average consumer really understands that or comprehends that um, on a day to day basis. Hello and welcome to the Farm Traveler podcast. I am your host, Trevor Williams. And today on the show, we have an old college friend of mine from my University of Florida days, Matt Griffin. So if you've ever wondered how farmers get their seeds and what exactly goes into that whole process of getting the right seeds for the right climates and the right regions, Matt's gonna tell you a thing or two about it. Matt is with United Genetics Seed Company and basically he provides companies with seeds that then sell those to farmers. So he goes about developing and creating the correct varieties for particular farmers and really what's gonna get them the most bang for their buck. And so he's gonna tell us what goes into that whole research process of creating varieties and all that good stuff. And also, he is kind of a Florida agriculture history buff, and he's gonna tell us all about this great state of Florida and all of the great products that we produce in the ag industry, which is right up there in terms of tourism. You know, of course, we've got Disney, Universal, all the beaches and everything. Well, agriculture is one of the leading industries. I think it's number two in the state of Florida. And also, this is a really cool fact about Matt. He does um, war reenactments as a Seminole Indian. And so he's going to tell us how he got into that and why it's really important for him to share the story of the Seminole Indian tribe here in Florida. This is episode, I think, 77 uh, with Matt Griffin. Really hope you enjoy it. If you're a first-time listener... So glad you're here. Thanks for joining us. And if you are a repeat listener, thanks again. Thanks for joining us on all these really cool episodes. I hope you learn a thing or two about where your food comes from. Be sure to check out Matt. Oh, and before I forget, 
Matt was also on another podcast, which you'll see linked in the description of this podcast. It's from our friend Pete Dola. He uh, Matt was on his podcast, The Millennial Salesman. So be sure to check out that, where Matt will kind of do a deep dive in his old his whole salesman thing. All right, enough stalling. Enjoy this episode with Matt Griffin. All right, well, welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast, Matt Griffin. How are you doing, man? Doing pretty good, bud. Doing pretty good. Glad to be here. Yeah, glad to have you on. So we were, I guess you could say, kind of classmates at UF. I mean, we didn't have any classes together, but I knew you. You were in Alpha Gamma Rho there, weren't you? I was, yes, sir. Yep. Nice. Yeah, yeah. So we had a few of the same professors, some classmates together and all that stuff. So it's been a hot minute. So tell us, what are you up to? Like, what's your background and what's your job right now? Uh, so kind of background, um, which, I mean, you know some of this. Kind of grew up in FFA and 4-H and stuff. Um, went on to UF, got a degree in food and resource economics from there. Uh, left UF and moved down to South Florida, start farming with Lipman Produce. Uh, started out as a production foreman, moved up to assistant manager, stayed in that role for probably the last three years or so that I was with them. And then about two and a half years ago, I got hooked up with United Genetics Seed Company. And I've been uh, doing seed sales and trialing different varieties of uh, or different hybrids of different vegetable seeds. And uh, I kind of cover the whole East Coast selling vegetables to other seed companies and to large growers. Gotcha. So I was listening to, we, we were just talking about it a minute ago. I was listening to another podcast you were on, our friend Pete Dola. You were on his podcast, The Millennial Salesman, talking about your job and the whole sales process and stuff like that. And when I was listening to it, so you don't really sell direct to farmers. You sell more towards seed companies. So how, what's that whole process like of kind of selling to companies and kind of getting them to buy you guys' seeds? Yeah, so... My territory is pretty big. So United Genetics wasn't that well known, I guess, over here on the East Coast. Um, we sell a lot of products around the world, um, sell a lot of products over on the West Coast. Uh, but the East Coast market was one that they were, they'd been in it for a while, but hadn't been a, you know, a huge player or anything. So, and partly because they didn't have anybody here on the East Coast. So about two and a half, three years ago, they were really trying to find somebody to fill the niche um, over here on the East Coast. And luckily, I got hired for the job. Uh, but yeah, I don't sell directly to the farmers. And my sales territory is pretty big. Um, you know, I, I always joke that I pretty much sell anything east of the Mississippi. Uh, so during a normal year, I travel between Florida to Indiana to Maine um, and everything in between. So. I sell mostly to other seed companies, the dealer network, uh, so Clifton Seed, uh, Seedway, Stokes, um, Highmark, Johnny Select. I sell to a lot of these other uh, seed companies and stuff. So really that process works out. When we come up with new varieties, let's say bell peppers or tomatoes, I will screen those products. So if our breeder comes up with 500 new hybrids of jalapenos i will go and look at her trials of those jalapenos and out of those 500 i might choose 50 that i think look good that i want to see again and i'll bring those over here to the east coast um, and i'll trial those here in florida and in georgia and out of that 50 i try to narrow that down to maybe 10 or 15. And then we're doing the same process all over again. You're just trialing and 
trawling, trawling, trawling until you find those products that look good in multiple locations, that look good in different growing climates with different practices and stuff like that. Um, and then a lot of times what I'll do is I'll give the dealer seed as well. So if I've got out of that 500, I choose five that look really good. I'll give my dealers seed out of those and then let them trial with some of the growers that they sell with. And then we'll try to find a product that we feel like we can go commercial with. And then we'll just start doing more trialing again. Uh, they'll start doing larger uh, block trials, acre, half acre trials, two acre trials uh, with some of their growers. And hopefully that product takes off and we'll just keep, we'll just keep that process going. So it's a, it's a lot of trial work. My job involves a lot of trial work. Um, and I, you know, I kind of always say that the product really should sell itself. Um, we can talk about quantities, we can talk about price, but I really need a product that's going to be as good, if not better than what the grower is already growing commercially now. Right. So when you're trying to sell a seed either to like someone in Indiana or Florida, are you selling to like, let's say, are you selling the same seeds to those two states? Or are you kind of trying to figure out something that works best in Indiana and something that works best in Florida because of those are very, two very different climates? So are you trying to find what works best for those or for those companies in the different areas that they're in? So realistically, I would love to find a product that works good, both in Florida, Indiana, the Carolinas, you know, Maine, wherever. Um, but that's all, that's not always the case. Um, you know, I've got a couple bell peppers that I know uh, that I know do better in South Georgia, North Florida, than they do in, let's say, North Georgia or in the Carolinas. So realistically, I would like to find products that are more flexible that I can take them anywhere. I can go to South Florida. I can go to South Georgia. I can go to Carolinas or New Jersey somewhere. Um, but you do have, sometimes you do find products that they do good in, in a state or in a growing region. Um, so I try to sell them those products that, that work best for what they need, um, for what their, their customers, what their farmers and stuff in those areas need. There you go. That's awesome. I mean, whatever works. So we've had another seed salesman on the show, but really they worked with kind of selling seeds direct to farmers. So how is the relationship different between selling to farmers to selling to different seed companies that then supply the farmers? So how is that relationship different? So for me, my relationship with the farmer, you know, because I'm, so I'm still very much so involved, I guess, a lot with those sales, even though it's through the dealer network, because I'm still going to the trials at their farms. You know, I'm still asking them questions about what they're seeing in the trials or, you know, about their operations and stuff. Um, you know, working with the other seed companies, I mean, we're talking about, you know, I'm selling to them in bulk. So I'm trying to use trying to get them to forecast what they're going to do for the next year or at least for the next six months. Um, so that's probably a little bit different than, you know, the guys, the, the dealers that are working directly with those farmers. Cause a lot of times they do, they are interfaced with them probably a little bit more so than I am because I'm also just trying to sell to the dealers. Um, but I definitely still have to have that connection with the growers a lot of times, or at least I try to have a connection with my growers and stuff too, 
because then I can also understand like what they're going through, what their needs and uh, what their needs and stuff are. And then I can communicate that back with my company. You know, if there's any trends that the growers are seeing, you know, on their end, I try to communicate that back with our breeders. So, you know, they're wanting, the growers are starting to want peppers that look this way, or they're wanting uh, squash that looks this way, or, you know, try to find, try to mimic what their needs are uh, with our breeding program. Gotcha. So going off of that, like how long would you say the average lifespan is of one variety before you guys are trying to improve it? Because those farmers and those seed companies are looking for something that looks different, tastes different, or just grows better. So how long would you say one variety lasts before it's improved upon? Um, so that's a hard question because, because <laughs> <laughs> every company you know, every seed company out there is constantly trying to breed and find new products, right? So last year, like I said, I looked at over 500 different varieties of jalapenos where our breeders are already breeding more jalapenos now. So it's a constant cycle. You're always, you're trying to stay one step ahead because products that I've got now that are in the trialing phase, well, it might be another year, two years before they're commercial but I'm constantly still trying to find a better product because, well, I'm still competing with all the other seed companies. So even if my product looks good now, they might have a product that's looking good as well. So I still need to find another product that's going to beat their product, you know? So you're yeah, constantly, yeah. You're constantly, it's just a constant game of we're trialing. We're trying to find new and better stuff. But on that same note, there's some varieties that have been out there on the marketplace for years. You know, I know some varieties of peppers or, or watermelons. It's like, man, these things have been around forever, <laughs> you know, and, but the growers love them. They do good. They, the growers, they know how to grow it. They know how those plants react uh, or, you know, they know how that variety is going to react for them during certain growing conditions uh, during certain times of the year. I mean, and they're, they're loyal to that, to that variety. So it's kind of hard to say. It just depends on, you know, any given year. Um, but there are some varieties that have, that have been around for quite some time. Um, and then there's some varieties that come on, they do really good for you know two or three years and you think they're going to be around forever. And then all of a sudden the market changes and they're gone. <laughs> so <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. So going off of that, my wife and I have been watching this show on Netflix. It's called, um, chef's table. And so they'll go around the country and they tour really around the world, the world and they'll showcase kind of these chefs and Michelin star chefs and just kind of showcase how they developed um, like their food and that kind of their, the whole restaurant idea and stuff like that. And we've seen a lot of episodes that are showcasing chefs that are working with local farmers in their states or in their country. And they're finding these old kind of these seeds that have been passed down from generations. So have you seen that where there has there been any sort of trend lately where people are wanting seeds that have been around for multiple generations because they're so rare, because they taste so different? Have you seen anything like that lately? Yeah. So you start getting into a lot of the heirloom type varieties. Um, and I think that trend, I think I kind of see more of that trend, uh, I think the further north that I go, I see more of that. Um, but also a lot of times with uh, smaller growers and then also like backyard gardeners and, and farmers and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I definitely, I definitely see that quite a bit. Um, you know, there's a lot of 
uh, farm to table movement and stuff. So a lot of restaurants are trying to partner up with local growers and stuff. And I mean, you know, there's a lot of times there's a premium for that kind of stuff, you know? So, um, but I mostly, so I do sell some of those varieties, um, to other seed companies as well that kind of cater to that. Um, but a large part of my business is catering to the larger scale commercial guys. Okay. Would you say that some of those heirloom um, varieties might need a little bit more, a little bit more um, work put into them and they need more caring than like the typical um, seeds that can really, they can go through so much because they've been um, kind of, you know, like they've been designed to grow with less nutrients and just to go quicker and to be more bountiful. So do you think those heirloom varieties need a lot more um, kind of work and attention? And maybe that's why it's usually kind of the smaller farms that have them. So there's definitely an inverse relationship between taste and, uh, and yield. So, you know, the, the bigger guys that are selling to, you know, your Walmarts or to your Wendy's and, you know, all of these other, uh, restaurants and grocery stores and stuff like that. I mean, they're getting paid off of, they're getting paid off about how much they can produce. Um, so a lot of times, what will end up happening is, you know, a lot of those heirloom varieties, yes, they taste great, but you might not necessarily get the same yield that you would out of, say, another commercial variety, even if they're both bred from a conventional breeding program. So, you know, nothing GMO or anything like that, but there's just that inverse relationship between taste and the, the amount of product that you're going to get. So, um, but the, there's definitely been a huge movement of, like I said, the whole farm to table uh, movement. There's even a restaurant here in my, in my hometown of Groveland or, or in Claremont um, that's been doing that, been trying to partner up with local growers to, you know, meet some of their needs and get some, you know, heirloom type varieties or just some other varieties that they might not otherwise be able to get. Gotcha. Those are all really good points, man. So, all right, going off of Groveland. So, you know, my old college roommate, Clayton Willis, he, he and I were roommates, good old times at UF. And the first time I went to Groveland, I was like, you know, why is it called Groveland? And then I was like, you know what? All the orange groves, that makes a lot of sense. So you're kind of an expert when it comes to ag in Florida. So what are, what are some things that the average consumer might not know about the industry in Florida? I mean, the thousand foot view, they know that we grow oranges and that's and that we probably have a little bit of seafood. So, what are some like some not so widely known um, commodities that we grow here in Florida that the average consumer might not know about? Well, I mean, Florida. I mean, we grow what over three hundred different varieties of um, you know fresh fruits and vegetables and stuff. So, you know, I did a program for uh, school kids not long ago, um, about a year or so ago, and you know, some of them had never seen an orange grove. I'm like. We're here in Lake County, like <laughs> literally 30 minutes away from y'all. And I know y'all have had to have seen an orange grove. And some of these kids are like, no, I don't think I have. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think the average consumer moving here, uh, I think some of the things that they don't recognize or realize is, well, just ag in general, um, you know, how much citrus used to be here compared to how much citrus is here now. Um, I don't think a lot of them realize just how extensive our cattle industry here is here in Florida, um, or just some of the other vegetable crops and stuff that we grow here. Um, you know, when I lived in Fort Myers and I was farming for Lipman at the time, 
I would, you know, you would be out, you would meet people. Hey, oh, hey, man, what do you do? Like, well, I farm. You know, I, we've got 6,000 acres. We're growing on about 3,000 of it. And they're like, where is this at? Literally. <laughs> so, you know, I think the average, you know, most people that move here, I, I feel like anymore, you know, if it's not some of our springs or Disney or the beaches and stuff, really don't have an idea of interior Florida outside of some of the metropolitan areas that they are actually in, you know? So, um, but definitely those have been two of the bigger ones. Um, just how our citrus industry, you know, I don't think a lot of people realize that ag for Florida really is the backbone of our economy, right? We talk about tourism a lot, but when COVID happens or when the housing market crashes, agriculture is always right there in what the top two, top three, I mean, we're literally the backbone of, of the state's economy, and I don't think the average consumer really understands that or comprehends that um, on a day-to-day basis. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. And going off of that, I had no idea whenever I first kind of entered the ag world in Florida that we have so much that so many like beef cattle operations. I mean, we're up in what the top 10, something like that. And here in the US and like Deseret Ranch down in South Florida. And now they're up here in North Florida, they're starting to buy up land around Bristol. And they're just this huge cattle operation. And so a lot of people don't know that we also have a lot of beef cattle here because we're so diverse in terms of agriculture. Yeah, and that's that's uh, that's something that I think most people really just don't understand or <laughs> or comprehend. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a really good point. And going off of that, like, what are kind of in terms of agriculture as a whole, not just here in Florida? What are some of the biggest misconceptions that you see people have? I mean, do you think? Like I, I think a lot of people just think that farmers, you know, dump pesticides willy nilly on on crops, and there's just whole, a whole bunch of stuff like that. So, what are some big misconceptions you see that consumers have on production agriculture? Um. So definitely. So that's a big one. Um. And I think sometimes we kind of get both. So there's two main perceptions that I think. One is that you know the farmers out there to get you. You know they're out there pouring all these pesticides and they're doing all this nasty stuff. But then, you know, you go to like a farmer's market and stuff, or you start talking to people and at the same, in the same conversation, you know, they've also got this rosy picture of what a farm is, you know, or what a farm should be, you know, this old McDonald uh, rosy picture of what the farming is. And I'm like, you, sometimes you get both of them mixed in at the same conversation. It, it's, it'll blow your mind sometimes, really. Um, so I think that's probably one of the big misconceptions. Um you know, at the end of the day, farmers are running a business, you know, and pesticides, uh, spraying stuff, spraying pesticides, herbicides, all of that stuff, that costs money. And if I don't need to spray that stuff, I'm not just going to go out there and waste thousands and thousands of dollars <laughs> just to be spraying stuff. So, you know, I don't think that a lot of people realize some of the best management practices that a lot of growers have implemented over the last, let's say, the last 25 to 50 years. Um, I also think one of the biggest misconceptions out there is I don't think a lot of people realize just how much time and effort and money it costs to actually produce some of the stuff that gets taken to the grocery store. Um, I was having a conversation actually this past weekend with a gentleman and I said, you know, the average cost for an acre of tomatoes to produce an acre of tomatoes is like $10,000. So you take a farm like where I was working at. At 400 acres, that's $4 million of an investment right there. 
So, you know, I'm going to do everything that I can to try to make sure that I produce a good quality product and in the hopes that the market cooperates and that we can break even, at least break even on that product. Yeah, I had no clue that it was $4 million for that much. I mean, Lord, I mean, it's certainly not a get rich quick scheme. And then you've got to factor in equipment like a combine costs, you know, an, on average $300,000. And you've got multiple combines, multiple tractors, um, all these chemicals, all the application processes. I mean, it's definitely not a quick get rich quick scheme. And it is super labor intensive, super expensive. So, I mean, oh, those yeah. are all really good points. I like those, man. Yeah, you know, that's... Uh... Um, I was talking with some guys and we were talking about, uh, just how much time and stuff that I, when I was farming, how much time I spent there. Um, I was at Warner university uh, last week and we were talking to some students about this, you know, the amount of time that, you know, there would be weekends where I'm getting Snapchat from people there in Gainesville tailgating, you know, at a football game and I'm in a tomato field trying to lay plastic or, you know, (laughs) or whatever else or you know, knee deep in the irrigation system trying to get it figured out so i don't think uh i definitely don't think people realize just the amount of time and, and money that goes into it but i also don't think people realize a lot of times the amount of technology how advanced technologically that agriculture is you know whether we're talking about gps tractors or automated irrigation systems or you know, using drones to scout fields and stuff. I really don't think the average consumer really understands, or a lot of the, a lot of the other you know agronomy and the science that goes into what we now do um, on a on a day to day farm. That's such a good point. And uh, I heard somebody talk about this. I can't remember who, but they were saying, you know, the ag industry is one of those industries where it combines meteorology, biology, chemistry, um, biotechnology. You know, like you're talking drones, all it it takes in so many different sciences and focuses because it's so diverse and there's so much technology and so much research that goes into it that the average consumer might not know. But you and I, we've been in it for a while, so we know how diverse and how time time consuming and how difficult it is. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the things that probably aggravates a lot of people in the ag industry because when we're in it, we know it or we grew up around it. So it's always, you know, trying to break that barrier of communicating that with other people, because um, one of the things that we know is, you know, that's just com- for us, that's just common knowledge. And I do think that sometimes we have to stop and realize that when we're talking to consumers and stuff, some of the stuff that we understand or that we comprehend, they don't necessarily have that same framework or that same set of uh, skills or mindset. So it, it can be frustrating trying to convey those ideas to other people. Yeah, that, that's a very good point. I mean, you want to you wanna educate them, but you also don't want to be too preachy and you don't want to sound like um, they're not educated on the subject matter, but they kind of aren't. It's, it's a really weird balancing act, that's for sure. Yeah, it's, it's a very thin line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, so I want to touch base on this a little bit, which this is a, a really cool aspect of you, and I think it's so neat. You do a lot of Seminole Tribe reenactments here in Florida. So tell us a little bit about that and how you got involved and kind of what the whole goal of that is. Yeah, so I do a lot of reenacting and living history events. Um, in particular, the time period that I 
I portray is the second Seminole Indian Wars. Um, so 1830s, 1840s. Um, I portray a black Seminole Indian from that time period. Um, so originally got into it. So long story short, um, my uncle growing up, my granddad's brother, um, they, they always had cows and stuff in Groveland. So I spent a lot of time with them growing up as a kid. And a lot of times on the weekends, I would go over there and would watch like old cowboy Western movies and stuff with them, the Lone Ranger, Gene Autry, Roy Rogers. And so my uncle at a young age knew that I, at a young, that I at a young age had an interest in history. So learning about them kind of led to learning about some of the black cowboys out West that land that turned into learning about the Buffalo soldiers uh, and some, eventually some of the black Indians and stuff. So eventually what happened is we started going to a, a reenactment at Dade Battlefield State Park over in Bushnell and went over there. I loved the reenactment. Uh, we met a lot of great historians and reenactors there. So every year we just made it a tradition to go every year. And every year that we went, we would learn something new. And some of the other reenactors kept seeing us coming back. And some of them were local or close to live close by. And so I started going over and spending some time with them and they really encouraged me to go ahead and get started in it and start teaching me a little bit about the history of the Indians um, and the black Seminole Indians and stuff from that time period. So I asked my uncle if I could, if he would help me get started and he helped me get an outfit made and together. And I was 10 years old at the time. So <laughs> I started, uh, I started reenacting at 10 and, and really started uh, being a guest lecturer and, and teaching some of the history that I had learned. Um, well, really that same year. So I was like 10 or 11. Um, so yeah, so that's what I do. So uh, like I said, I portray a black Seminole Indian, which, were a lot of times escaped slaves or runaways that would escape from plantations in northern Florida, um, in Alabama and Georgia, and out of the Carolinas, and were coming down into Florida and joining up with the Seminole Indians here. Um, a lot of times they would have their own towns, their own villages, their own chiefs, uh, their own tribal councils, and stuff like that. Um, but really became really became fully integrated with the with the Seminole tribe um, during those time periods. So. Um, I, we do reenactments of the war, uh, that the Seminoles and the black Seminoles fought against the, fought against the U United States government. So, um, I've been doing that this upcoming season for me, reenacting season will be 20 years for me, um, doing that. And I've had the opportunity to meet some wonderful and amazing people, uh, from around the world, really. Um, you know, I've, I've got friends in, in Europe now because of it. Um, and I've been able to travel to some other places, um, teaching other people about the history of Florida, um, the Seminole Wars, and also later found out that this is also part of my history. I had a grandfather and grandmother that escaped from a plantation up in Alabama and came down to Florida uh, near present-day Brooksville. Um, and our family started interacting with the Seminoles. Um, they're one of the oldest uh, villages that the, the Seminoles had here in the state of Florida, um, Chuck and Chatty. So, yeah, it's been a, it's been a fun journey. Um, you know, nowadays there are Black Seminole Indians spread out all over. Um, so I've had the opportunity to go down to the Bahama Islands because um, there's a large group of them that left Florida during the wars um, in the 1830s. 
I left and went down to the Bahamas. So I've been able to go down there and visit with some of their descendants there. Uh, there's also a large group in Texas and in Mexico. Um, I've been to Texas and visited with some of them down there as well. And uh, if it hadn't been for COVID, I was going to go down to Mexico this year as well and visit with some of those descendants and stuff that are down there. So, yeah, like I said, it's been a, it's been a fun journey these last these last 20 years doing that. It sounds like it's been really fun. How long is the is the reenactment season for you? Um, so usually most of the reenactments that I do, we try to keep them as close as we can to the actual dates of the battle. Um, that doesn't always happen. Um, but usually my reenacting season lasts between, I would say, November to about March. Um, so those are most of the events here in Florida. So usually January, February, March are the bulk of my reenactments. Um, and then I get called to do programs and shows for school groups, uh, his, history organizations. Uh, for the longest time, I had a standing invitation at University of Central Florida. Um, one of their anthropology classes and stuff, I would go over there and guest lecture for a day or two. Um, so yeah, it's it usually, like I said, usually my reenacting season is about four to five months. Because um, most of those battles that took place would have happened during the winter months or you know the fall and winter of the year. Uh, summertime here in Florida, 1800s. I mean, it's bad enough now in 2020. So it's oh yeah, <laughs> and you know, 200 years ago. Um, so a lot of times the army would leave um, the interior of Florida and then come back um, in the fall and the winter. Gotcha. Yeah. So I know that Florida, we have, so, we're so proud of the Seminole Indian tribe. I mean, first off, you got Florida State, and I mean, they have like an official partnership for the likeness of the Florida State Indian or of the of the Seminoles. And then I know growing up in Bluntstown, one of our our one of our staple grocery stores, Piggly Wiggly, was um, the owner of it. His name was I forget his his first name. I think it was Dave. Um, no, not Dave Ramsey. That's the other guy. But his last name was Ramsey, and he was. Yeah, yeah, I've been listening to um, the his podcast too much. But this guy's last name was Ramsey, and he was a chief of the Florida State Seminoles. And so I know we're super proud of that. And so when you do these reenactments or these guest lectures, I mean, why is it important that we need to remember this active history of the Florida Seminoles? Um. So, I mean, a couple of different things there. One, you know, the, the Seminole, the history of the, the Seminole Indians is just uh, such a unique part of American history, right? A unique part of Florida history. So for me, you know, I personally, I just enjoy that time frame in history. And I enjoy teaching other people what I've learned over the years. You know, when I first started, some of the old timers would tell me, Oh, you'll do this for another 50 years and you'll just be scratching the surface of it. You know, there's so much information out there and I, I can fully agree with that now because I, like I said, I've been doing this for 20 years now and I still, you know, I still go to some of those same guys and ask them questions and say, Hey, have you know any information on this? Because there's just so much to learn. Um, but it's really a unique part of Florida history, a part of what U.S. history, you know, one of the things that I always joke with people about is you really don't understand how the Seminole Wars really helped shape the rest of U.S. history. You know, people talk, oh, you know, that's crazy. You know, we talk about the American Revolution 
you know, the War of 1812 and, you know, all these different wars and stuff that we've had. I'm like, this is probably one of the least known parts of, of American history that has such a huge impact um, over really how this, how this country is run. You know, a lot of military officers that would go on to do big things in, with, within their military career um, whether it was in the Civil War or some of the, the wars out West, the Indian Wars out West or the, um, the Mexican-American Wars, you know, a lot of those guys cut their teeth here in Florida. <laughs> you know, they, they were here in the swamps of Florida uh, trying to get rid of the Seminoles. Um, you know, the Seminole Indians are the only Native American tribe. The ones here in Florida uh, are the only tribe in the United States that has never signed a formal peace agreement with the United States and are still here. You know, the United States government spent more money to get rid of the Seminoles out of Florida than they did of all the other Western Indian campaigns. So the Sioux, the Comanches, the Cheyennes, you know, all those Western Indians, the United States government spent more money on the war here in Florida than they did on all of those wars out there combined. So, you know, that's just a, it's just fascinating to me. Um, and then once you start talking, adding in the, the side of with the black Seminoles and stuff, um, you know, I tell people all the time that, you know, we, we talk a lot about uh, the Civil War and the slavery and Underground Railroad and stuff. But long before escaped slaves were headed north to try to seek freedom, they had always for what over 100 years prior, you know, for over 100 years had been coming south into Florida, um, which is one of the reasons why uh, Andrew Jackson came down into Florida, which is one of the big reasons why Alabama and Georgia was putting so much pressure on the on the federal government to, to obtain Florida. Um, it's because you had this large contingency of blacks that were coming down into Florida. So, you know, when you really started thinking about it from their perspective and stuff, you've got um, from a labor perspective, you've got a large group of, you know, your capital is escaping and coming down into Florida. Um, and then there's also always that, um, there's always a scare, if you will, of if they can get enough men together, if they get enough arms, will they eventually cause a revolt that could spread like wildflower, you know, wildfire? Um, over the plantations there in Alabama and Georgia. Wow, yeah, that's a really good point. And I totally forgot, I knew that at some point, but I forgot that the Seminole Indian tribe never actually surrendered um, or, or signed any peace treaty. So that's a really cool fun fact. I like that. Yep. That's awesome. Well, Matt, this has been a cool conversation, man. I feel like we've covered a lot, talking about um, seed sales, Florida agriculture, the Seminole Indian tribe of Florida. Um, if people want to follow you, I know you're on Instagram, you're on Facebook. If they want to follow you, your journey, where can they go? Yeah, so definitely, uh, I mean, I'm on Facebook, Matt Griffin, um, or on Instagram, um, and I can I can give you that information and stuff as well. Uh, so token1561 on Instagram. Um, so yeah, just follow me there. Um, and then, you know, with this new job of being in the seed sales and stuff, I've really found that I've, I've enjoyed traveling some more, um, which is something that uh, is kind of a newfound passion. So um, I also try to take pictures wherever I go, you know, whether I'm on a farm or, or if I'm visiting somewhere, uh, 
you know, if I'm going to look at a trial in New York and if I've got some extra time, I'll try to go to the Niagara Falls or wherever else. So um, I started another Instagram page and stuff to try to capture some of those moments and stuff when I go to different places and stuff too. So um, Omnipresent Beauty is my other Instagram page where I try to showcase some of that stuff as well. Nice. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know you had that other page. I'll go check it out and give you a follow. That's awesome, man. Well, cool. Well, thanks for being on. This is super cool to talk, to talk with you and kind of see what you're up to now. It's been, it's been, man, I guess what, six years since college time flies by. Those were the good old days. We're getting old, man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, cool. Well, thanks for being on. We'll have to touch base with you soon, Matt. Best of luck, man. I appreciate it.